Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I hope this episode is finding you enjoying the longer days of summer, sunshine, and hopefully a day at the beach. I have some really interesting information today. It's something kind of new and different. So buckle your seatbelt and get ready to step on the rocket ship to the future. My guest today is Dr. Abby Vanderweg, and Dr. Vanderweg has a major in psychology from Kalamazoo College and quickly transitioned into the master's degree program in counseling psychology at Western Michigan University where she completed her degree in 2006. While working towards that degree, she developed an interest in holistic health and pursued a graduate certificate in holistic health care. Dr. Vanderweg then accepted a position as a family therapist for the Family Reunification Program at Bethany Christian Services. Feeling at home in Kalamazoo, she entered the APA-accredited PhD program at Western Michigan University in Counseling Psychology in 2007 and completed a full-time APA-accredited pre-doctoral internship at the Battle Creek VA Medical Center where she pursued rotations in outpatient and residential PTSD, outpatient mental health, inpatient mental health, and substance abuse treatment. After completing her Ph.D. in 2011, she joined Child and Family Psychological Services and then directed the Portage Office until 2020. In 2020, she joined Teletherapy Group, where Dr. Vanderweg sees children and adult clients virtually and face-to-face. Dr. Vanderweg has completed advanced training in psychological evaluation, anxiety, and PTSD therapies, and mindfulness. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I think it's really interesting and kind of fun to think about all the possibilities. Hi, Abby. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Gugino. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good, and please call me Leah. We're friends here. (laughs) Oh, I appreciate you taking time in the middle of the summer to do this with me. And I am really fascinated by this topic. But before we jump in, I just wanted you to give listeners maybe a little bit of an idea about how you got into pediatric psychology. You bet. I would love to share that story. It's actually a fairly straightforward one, though. I was fascinated during my high school AP psychology course. I had one of those teachers that totally just brought the subject to life and used some really great examples to illuminate just how fascinating the field could be. And from then on, I was hooked. I went straight into an undergraduate major in psychology at Kelmsley College and pretty much right from the start took as many psychology courses as my schedule would allow. And At K College, I was very fortunate to have an incredible group of professors who challenged me to consider psychology theories within like a broader socio-cultural context. And right after graduation from there, I went straight into graduate school at Western Michigan University in counseling psychology. And that program has an explicit focus on multicultural competence. So counseling psychology in general focuses on development across the lifespan and the various influences on development, including individual and contextual factors. So at that point, I became really interested in the combination of neurological, family, and cultural components of anxiety and how early life experiences contribute to the neural pathways of anxiety. I love learning about neuroplasticity and the implications for therapy. And so after graduating, I began working in private practice with clients across developmental stages, but especially with adolescent girls who present. Mm -hmm. Yes, I having done lots of work with teenagers and particularly adolescent girls, I can totally relate to seeing anxiety and having been a person, well, still am with anxiety and kids with anxiety. I uh, go you. I'm so glad that you're <laughs> you're working in that because that's really important. 
Thank and, you. And I love the shout out to the teacher. I've told this before on the podcast, but I, the reason I went into medicine is because a teacher said to me one sentence, have you ever thought about being a doctor? And that was it for me, my senior year of high school. So I credit Mrs. Tally with that. So, well, well, that's really great. And it sounds, I love the neuroplasticity because for those of us in pediatrics, we know that kids' brains are so, they're just growing like crazy. If you look at the neural networks, it's like the most dense tree that you can imagine with all those connectors. So I think I just was, that kind of leads us right into social anxiety. School avoidance is another biggie that I have seen in practice. And then all these phobias. And we're going to talk a little bit today about kind of the therapy, but really a new option, which I think is so exciting. Who knew that we'd have these technologies, but then who knew we'd be doing interviews via Zoom? Never in a million Never in a million years. So so this might be a total game changer. And again, in pediatrics, this whole field of anxiety, social anxieties, school avoidance, big issue. I can think of several kids where this was like, and it so impacted them in so many ways. And the treatment sometimes took a long time. I would see them many times. We'd work with therapists, medication. And what's the... What's the prevalence of this, like phobias and social anxiety? What's that look like in kids? Well, social anxiety is definitely a common mental health condition. It often begins at a clinical level during adolescence and can become chronic in, for the lifespan. The lifetime prevalence of social anxiety is around 12%. So although a shy temperament in early childhood may be a risk factor, Social anxiety, that excessive fear of being negatively judged in social settings, is more severe and pervasive and often leads to avoidance of social situations, sometimes to a degree that seriously impairs functioning. Social anxiety runs in families, whether from genetics or learned behaviors, and may be associated with an overactive amygdala. So although girls and women are more likely to have lifetime diagnoses of anxiety in general, there seems to be some like mixed findings regarding gender differences for social anxiety in particular. Okay. Yeah, I can, I think about families that I've seen and shy kids and I've read that, and I don't know if this is true, that shyness can be genetic, that shy parents may have shy kids. Is that, have you ever heard that? I think there's, well, there's like the, the slow to warm up temperament. And I think that can definitely be a contributing factor. But I think it's always so hard to tease apart what could be genetic and what might be environmental. Sure. When children were exposed day in and day out to how their parents respond to things. Right. The nurture versus nature, right? Absolutely. Always a debate. Yeah. So, and what about phobias? Are those common? Well, well like with, you had mentioned school avoidance. Yeah. So that is one form of school refusal and is specifically related to something like bad happening at school, such as getting bullied, feeling embarrassed in front of like teachers or peers, violence at school, failing a test. So with school avoidance, children may start with vague complaints about school that progress toward tardiness or coming home partway through the day or eventually refusing to attend at all. So older children tend to have more gradual onsets of school avoidance, but their prognoses tend to be worse because they they really build up in their mind the fears that they have. So the prevalence can be difficult to estimate, but it seems to be about 2 to 5% of school-age children. But I, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just thinking about some kids that I've seen that it was almost crippling the school avoidance and the worse it got, the worse it got. And I think parents, and again, you see this probably more often, but it was the harder it got for the kids and the more distressed they were, the more the parents didn't want to send them to school because it was so distressing. And so there, that was that whole avoidance piece, right? Absolutely. You know, parent wants to drag their kid out of bed or have to leave them crying in the school parking lot, like it's a horrible experience. So 
that is definitely an area where earlier intervention is very important. Right. And I can think of, so my younger daughter, and I don't think she would mind me telling this, had horrible like separation anxiety when she was little and yeah, literally leave her crying when she had a necklace and it used to be like we had to like kiss the necklace and that was, and I couldn't even go, if she knew I was in the school building, like forget it, it was game over. Okay. So making her go was so hard. It was so hard, but I think of, and I would tell parents often, you see the kid's face smashed up against the window at daycare. And But I would say, if they stop crying five minutes after you're gone, it's okay. If they're crying for the whole time, yeah, maybe we've got a problem. <laughs> right. And some of that is definitely normal and natural. Yeah. Yeah, those young kids probably, probably pretty common. But yeah, the older they get, the worse. And there was another phobia that was kind of common, fear of vomiting. And there's even a name for it. And I can't remember the phobia name, but it's one of my kids once told me the name of it. But and so fear of going to like overnights because they were so afraid they were going to throw up. You bet. You bet. I've got a story about that for you in a few minutes. Oh, good, good, good. So you had, you're kind of bringing up like those specific phobias. So the specific phobia is an extreme fear of an object or situation that is not actually dangerous to the child. So they don't even have to have had like a negative experience with the object of the phobia to develop it. So specific phobia occur in about 5% of children. Okay. And common specific phobias for children can be grouped in like a couple different areas. So there's animals like dogs, spiders, other insects, snakes, maybe situations such as going to school, being in the dark, being up high, afraid of heights or flying in a plane. There's medical procedures, which I'm sure you have seen plenty of times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ads are giving blood. And then there's kind of this other group, like loud noises, storms, vomiting, and the fear of clowns. Like my husband still suffers from. There's a lot of fear of clowns. I don't know. All you have to see is it, right? And everybody's oh, terrifying. No, no, thank you. So with specific phobias, there, there can be a family history of anxiety. And then, like we've talked about, the child's temperament and potentially like a history of trauma unrelated to the phobia mm. can increase the risk of developing phobias. Maybe just that kind of your brain, you mentioned the amygdala, just sort of that fight or flight's just the switches on all the time. Right. So they're scared of everything, right? You bet. Extra sensitive. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, when parents come in and start asking about, certain situations. Um, at what point should we be referring? I think there's part of it that we reassure is normal. Like you mentioned, you're dropping your three-year-old off to preschool and yeah, not that unusual five-year-old kindergarten. But, you know, when, and I think overnights, that's kind of scary, but probably somewhat developmentally normal. At what point should we think about referring to someone like you? Well, the advice would be to first check out those core pillars of health and child development. How is the child's diet? Is it possible that some blood sugar spikes or crashes from candy or sugary drinks may be causing meltdowns that might look like clinical anxiety? Or is the child having lots of opportunities for movement? We know that we need to release anxiety through our movement. What about time outside? Does, does the child have opportunities to run around the backyard, just maybe not necessarily in organized sports, but to get out, move, kind of just have that free play. Does the child sleep adequately? Could there be some airway issues or other things that are interfering with restorative sleep? How much time does the child have looking at a screen and what does that include? Could there be things there that are planting seeds for anxiety? And does the child have friends? Do they enjoy socializing? Do they have just kind of that unstructured time to discover the world? So if those things check out or they can be addressed, I would talk to parents about the level of impairment that they're observing in their child. Has he or she stopped doing things that they used to do without a problem? 
Or do they do those things only with great difficulty? Some changes might include coming to the parents' bed during the night, no longer being able to sleep on their own, arguing every morning when it's time to go to school, no longer logging their hours with their driving permit. Suddenly they stopped wanting to practice driving. I forgot about that one. That's a common one. I'm amazed how many kids... I remember, boy, when we turned 16, it was like, give me the keys. (laughs) A lot of kids are like, nope, don't need it, which surprises me. And I don't know if that's fear or it's just easier to have somebody drive you around. (laughs) I'm guessing a little of both. Yeah, yeah. The fear of knowing where you're going, because I think there's a lot of staring at your phone while mom or dad's driving around and then suddenly it's your turn to drive and you don't have any idea where anything is. For like my kids that have no sense of direction and one time we're supposed to go north to a dentist appointment and ended up in a town south, like 20 minutes south and calling like, <laughs> mom, I'm in Vicksburg. I'm like, no, nope, right. you're supposed to be in Plainwell. Totally different direction. Yeah, yeah. Some of us are map challenged. Thank God for GPS, right? But. Right. So there's like those kind of changes, maybe leaving class in the middle of a test Mm -hmm. or needing to go down to the basement. So if the parents have some simple attempts to get their kids back into those feared situations and they're not working, that's when I think it's time to check in with a therapist and set up some more formal therapy to address that. So I'm thinking about, because sometimes I think as we refer to therapy, a lot of people, you just say therapy and they're resistant. So I like to coach it as a coach. Sometimes when kids are having a hard time, it's nice to have somebody that can kind of coach you through how to be able to get to where you want to. And I think we also use motivational interviewing. Like on the one hand, I get that being at school is scary, but on the other hand, that's where your friends are. And You said you wanted to be a doctor when you grow up and going to school is important. So how do we get you there? But I think also if we are going to refer to therapy, it's nice to prep families for like what's going to happen. So I know there's a couple of kind of therapeutic approaches to anxiety and phobias, exposure therapy. And then in a minute, then we're going to talk about this kind of exciting way to do that. So what's exposure therapy? So I can explain that to my parents. Oh, yeah, you bet. So exposure therapy is the foundation for many effective therapies for anxiety. Exposure therapy works by systematically introducing and maintaining contact with the feared experience until the experience no longer produces the fear response. So you have to work against that urge to avoid the feared situation. The goal is habituation. So that's like getting back to the brain and creating those new emotional circuitry that can't be established if the amygdala is successful in getting you to avoid the feared situations, those triggering situations. So with exposure-based therapy, you're essentially retraining the amygdala to stop ringing those alarm bells and the repeated exposures teach the amygdala that the situation is safe, that there's no need for panic. But the key is that you really have to first activate the amygdala in order to generate a different response. So it's activate to generate. So those new neural pathways are developed and then reinforced with the repeated exposure. So I'm thinking I could explain it. I'd probably, I don't know, maybe I'd be avoiding if I didn't talk about the actual exposure, but to be able to say you have this horrible fear of dogs and you would love to have a dog, but you're so afraid. And a therapist like Abby could coach you to actually have your brain not be so afraid. And maybe I could introduce it like that. Would that be, is that legit? Oh, absolutely, Leah. It's really about saying, you know, kind of somehow, Your brain learns that these situations are scary for you, but, you know, turns out your brain kind of has it wrong in this case. (laughs) What we can do is we can teach your brain to have a different kind of response and be able to experience something differently and thinking about somehow a door got closed and we want to have some new learning to reopen that door and make the world bigger for you, give you more opportunities to get 
out there and experience things. I love that metaphor of the door. That's beautiful. I like that, especially if I'm thinking about school. Like there's so many opportunities for school. And and I think like overnights feeling left out and that kind of thing and that horrible anxiety of I need to go home. I love that idea. So I'm guessing I think about things like fear of flying, which is pretty common. I have a little bit of that turbulence fear that somehow I developed as I got older. But actually doing exposure to that could be, how are you going to go to an airplane with somebody and buy a ticket and get on a plane with them? That's probably not going to happen easily. So there's this sort of exciting, I don't know how new it is, but this sort of exciting therapy called virtual reality. And why don't you tell listeners a little bit about what is that? What's it look like? Sure. Yeah, well, and I think some of us that weren't maybe teenagers, the whole field of virtual reality or just the technology is somewhat foreign to us. So I'll start with kind of explaining what the technology is. So virtual reality is a technology that projects graphics into a headset, like a head-mounted goggles. So these graphics are 3D and they're interactive. So if you're wearing the headset, you can move your head and what you see changes. And if you kind of tilt your gaze or move your eyes up or to the left or right, your avatar can move and interact within the virtual environment. So you can walk along a virtual beach, swim with virtual dolphins, eat in a virtual restaurant. So with virtual reality, you develop what we call a sense of presence. So that's the degree to which the environment feels real mm-hmm. and elicit like real emotional and physical reactions. So then let's take this into the therapy setting. So with virtual reality therapy, you can enter virtual environments that are designed to help achieve the therapeutic goals. So let's go back to this exposure-based therapy. So the degree to which the exposures feel like the real situations affects how effective the therapy is. So you need to reliably activate the amygdala and that anxious response during the exposures to eventually extinguish anxious response in real life. So the kid or the teenager needs to believe or feel that this is like, that's a real spider. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And so... That is what can make these virtual environments and virtual reality really ideal for situations that would be very hard to simulate or like access for what we call in vivo exposure. In vivo exposure is like the real life exposure. So with virtual reality, we're talking in virtual exposure. So then there's imaginal exposure too, just kind of imagining something in your mind. And so that might be a little bit easier to do, but can that produce that same like real life feeling? Right, right. So for typical exposure therapy, we would develop that hierarchy of feared situations. So if you were afraid of driving, we would start with driving in the car in the least threatening situation and with like calm weather conditions on an empty city street and then gradually advance to driving in stormy weather or along a curvy road or on a crowded highway. Whatever whatever it is that the client says is their most like feared situation. I once, so, had, a, I once had a kid, I told him, let's just try backing out of your driveway. Just Let's just do, all you have to do is get in the car, back out of the driveway, pull back in. And then we would say, well, what about driving around your block? Because that's pretty safe, right? But man's for some kids, that was hard. And of course, it was just me suggesting it. So this sounds like that idea of putting on this headset, which I think this sounds like interactive, like video games that kids may already be doing where they're in a war situation. So maybe familiar to them. And then you're behind a real wheel. Does Is that kind of what the experience is like? Yes, you can imagine being able to like, tailor a lot of different settings to fit the situation that works for the client. So even down to skin tone and gender for the avatar that's like driving the car and being able to, for the car example, choose whether there's a passenger in the seat 
whether it's raining, starting with fewer other cars on the road and then increasing the number of cars, Mm. being able to have kind of sudden situations happen where suddenly there's like an ambulance coming and the driver has to react to that. So there are a lot of different ways that we can develop just a like very personalized approach, but still follow these really core tenets of exposure-based therapy, which is to develop that hierarchy starting at the lowest point and then move up through the hierarchy. And with each progression, there's a tracking of what we call the SUDS rating, which is subjective unit of distress scale. So that's the client's own perceived degree of anxiety that they're experiencing at each level of the hierarchy. And so once drop your SUDS rating enough at one level, then you advance to the next one. That we know with each progression that there's kind of the mastery of one before you move on to the next. I like and that it's something that the patient can kind of look at their own numbers and say, gosh, when I was at this level before, my SUDS was, I don't know, 10, whatever the rating right. scale is. And now it's like a five. So, wow, you get to move up to the next. Let's get on the highway. I love that. That's it's sort of like feedback, right? Yes. And in fact, with the VR software that I use, there's actually an electrodermal sensor that the, the children wear as well. And so we are able to track their anxiety level through that in addition to their own subjective ratings, which I think really helps build their motivation and confidence for me to be able to show them data at the end of a therapy session that they started with their anxiety level up here. And after they did a certain exposure several times, we were able to see how it dropped and how their body is less physically reactive to the situation. Does it measure like heart rate or? It's like skin conductance. So just the... Okay of electrical activity in the skin. Okay. I love, I'm like fascinated. Like who are the people that come up with this stuff that can like, I don't know, sit and think of like developing all these situations. And I think I was even reading some of the references that you'd sent me and I will include in the show notes about, for example, a teenager that has like public speaking or school avoidance where they're actually, you can create an audience that would like look bored or distracted and you'd be in front of just so clever. Is there like a library that you get when you're the the therapist? Like, I'm going to just look up spider under S. Yeah, well, in fact, it is somewhat like that. Like the software that I have includes just different kind of categories. So there's like heights, animals, medical situations, flying, several different areas that I can use and then even creatively combine. So if there's someone with a fear of crowded spaces, I don't necessarily have to use the elevator for a fear of heights as much as a fear of crowded spaces. And I can control how many other people get on the elevator or we can use a subway or there are other situations like that. Oh, you can get creative. Well, is there some research to back this up? I mean, I'm guessing the answer is yes, of course, (laughs) but you know, is there, are there random controlled trials from, for a lot of listeners out there, they want to know, is this evidence-based? So what about that? You bet, Leah. I think the effectiveness of VR therapy has been empirically studied and supported for a variety of conditions, including generalized and social anxiety, specific phobias. Certainly there's a lot of work in the area of PTSD, but a lot of this research, however, has has really been focused on adult participants. Mm, okay. So what we definitely need to see in the future are some more of those randomized controlled trials, including children. But researchers are starting to look at how feasible are those kinds of studies? What are some of the the conditions that we kind of need to establish first before moving into those kind of studies. So for like social anxiety, for example, researchers do have some evidence that we can put adolescents into these virtual reality situations who have fears of social situations and they can kind of look at what degree they experience that sense of presence that we're talking about. So based on the anxiety responses for being in 
either like a party environment or a public speaking environment, the participants were able to be kind of divided into socially anxious and not anxious groups based on their like responses to those environments. And then they could see how their responses in those environments compared to like a neutral virtual environment, such as like an aquarium. So the researchers can say, based on these kind of studies, that yes, we are able to generate the anxiety necessary for exposure therapy to be successful using virtual reality for adolescents who have social anxiety. So it feels real. Exactly. Yeah. It feels real. So for those who felt like it felt real, and it sounded like a significant number did, did it work? Yeah, I think that they are noticing that with the immersion that they can then reduce the anxiety. But even at this point, we don't have the repeated trials, the evidence to say that this is just the the way to go for treatment for social anxiety for adolescents. But we know that some of those foundational elements are possible with VR therapy. So need some increased studies. So, but then there's always sort of real life experience. So what's it been like for you? Can you talk a little bit about your own experience using this kind of therapy? Absolutely. I have been very fortunate that I've had some great experiences. I think that my background with exposure therapy for other anxiety disorders has helped me with having a good protocol and approach to the therapy. So first, an initial session starts with the parents and we review kind of the basics of virtual reality therapy and the consent process and of what to expect, what the anticipated benefits are, what might be some kind of things to look out for. So then the next big step is to sit down with the clients and really identify what their goals are. What are they looking for? What do they want? How can we get there through developing that hierarchy? And so during the first virtual reality therapy session, we really just focus on getting comfortable with the technology, visiting an environment just to see from a vestibular standpoint how they respond to it, making sure they are comfortable with the different level of sensory input that they're experiencing. And then we move into doing like a relaxation environment. So we assess their response to the relaxation environment and like how immersed they can feel under those conditions and then kind of establish a relaxation protocol so that they know that at each point along the way, as we advance through the hierarchy, that going back to their relaxation protocol is a really important part of the new learning. So, So then we begin at the bottom of the exposure hierarchy, monitor the anxiety along the way using those electrodermal activity sensors, and then go from being able to have like this efficient process that's not too threatening. We sometimes have found, or I certainly have found over the years, that it can be hard to motivate clients to want to address those areas of avoidance for them. So to be able to do this with, in a way that doesn't feel threatening, it's really important. So for example, I had one teenage client, I'll call him Marcus. Marcus was afraid of flying. He had never had any bad experiences on a plane, but just didn't like the idea, kind of knew too much for it to feel comfortable to him. But he was leaving for college. He was going out of state for college in the fall and anticipated that the way to come home would be to fly back and forth on breaks. So he was really nervous about having to do that with every break. So we really had to start and kind of figure out where, when his anxiety started. And he realized it was the at home, the day before, the morning of a flight. And so we started the, his hierarchy there. And then we advanced the virtual reality environment to getting the car, going to the airport in the car. And then we were able to go from that to waiting at the gate and then boarding the plane, getting in his seat, getting settled in the seat. There's even ways for him to kind of, we can decide whether he wants the people next to him to talk to him at all or be quiet. So we kind of varied those conditions. And then we started to practice like taking off. And so a really cool thing is that we were able to take off over and over again with with obviously like never 
finishing the flight. So this is something we would not be able to access in real life. So then we practice taking off over and over again. That had been a, a pretty scary thing for him. But then we had to also include some turbulence on his flight because that was... <laughs> I just made, for those of you who are listening, I just made a face. I literally one time was in really bad turbulence and I literally held the hand of the woman next to me, tears streaming down my face. And she's like, it's okay. <laughs> so I got through it and I've gotten back on a plane since. But man, I totally get that. And it's for people with anxiety, that, those feelings just come on, boom. It's so physiologic, just like you just can't even anticipate it. It's just there. So I, I love the fact that you get to practice while you're kind of holding my hand. I know you're sitting there. You can save me, right? <laughs> right. Well, and yeah, and absolutely. And Marcus, like really, he got a lot out of practicing the relaxation during these exposures so that each time he kind of was cued. As he started to feel anxious, he knew that was when he had to move over to focusing on his diaphragmatic breathing, relaxing his muscles. We practiced that over and over again so that that was second nature to him. And, and then you, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you, but I'm so fascinated. So are you talking to him during the experience? So like when he's like the turbulence starts or something, are you then cueing him? Okay, this is where you take your deep breaths or is he just practicing what you've taught him? Well, there's kind of two different ways that I can do that. The first is to either I can type a message that will show up in the screen. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, looks like your shoulders are tensing, relax your shoulders. So it can be just a, a one quick line message like that. Or the software that I use has an option to do like an audio recording, coaching abdominal breathing during the exposures. I love that. So it's literal, as I was suggesting, it's literal coaching. I love that you could see that like, style. I finally developed a thing that I imagine that being on a plane is like being on a boat on the water. And so I would just like say to myself, it's just like waves. And then I read somewhere that if the flight attendants are walking up and down the aisle, it's probably okay. If they start strapping themselves <laughs> in, yeah, maybe you should start working. Right. Use yeah. that kind of help. <laughs> yes, exactly. Anytime you're calm enough to actually let your brain think rationally, you're in good shape. So that's the first step is always calming the body and getting those physiological responses regulated. So that you can start reminding yourself, these flights happen all the time. We never hear about problems that really occur with any frequency. What is the likelihood of any of that happen? Of course, when you're in the throes of panic, it's hard to turn that on. So it almost sounds like you're identifying the beginning of that road. Like as soon as you start feeling heart start to speed up okay, now start breathing rather than like I'm in full-blown panic. Because when you're having the major meltdown, it's hard to, and sometimes you just got to wait till it's over, right? Right. To read it back in, you bet. Yeah. And I like the sports analogy of thinking that you don't show up to the big game having never practiced your skills. We have to practice these relaxation skills when times are calm. When we're not on, in those threatening situations to be able to call them up when the situation requires it. Okay. How young have you used this? How young are kids? Well, I have, I've had one younger girl who came in with fears of storms and the dark. And so for her, it worked out really well because again, with storms, we can't just make them happen so that we can practice. And it's so much easier to be successful with exposure therapy when we can have the repeated practice. And so with her, it was really great to be able to set up the virtual environment to start with a storm during the day when she was in her house and she was able, well, not her real house, her avatar house, but she was able to experience it that way. And then we moved into having it be darker and a more severe storm and kind of built things up through that. I want to say that she was about eight or nine. Mm, okay. And I had, great, I had a great experience with a really, just a, a short-term kind of situation. I had one client who came in for psychological testing. It wasn't a client of mine or anxiety at all. But when she came in for the testing, 
she had a brace around her knee. And so we started talking about what had happened and she had been hurt in one of her soccer games, but she didn't, they didn't know like what the injury actually was. And so she was scheduled for an MRI, but was really nervous about it. And so we finished our testing and I was able to talk with her mom for a minute and kind of let her know about this opportunity that I might be able to offer her daughter to kind of get ready for that MRI. So she just came in for one more session and we practiced the MRI, like virtual reality environment that I have and started in the waiting room, progressed into the room that's like the changing room or right off the imaging room and then worked her way into going into the imaging room and lying down in the MRI and the machine and then being able to have the noise start because that's, I think, a big part of what makes that scary for children is how loud those machines are. And then be able to just kind of practice the breathing and being able to stay still while the machine took its image. And then that was it. That She was on her way. So it was just a really nice way to have like a brief intervention to still use those tenets of relearning and teaching her brain not to be nervous in that kind of situation. As you're talking about that, I'm like, yeah, it's not just kids that fear MRI. <laughs> I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, small environment, super loud. I'll just take a deep breath. Just hearing you talk about it could elicit fear. So how many sessions are typical for, or does it depend on the severity of the phobia, I guess? But what, like, what's a normal range for number of treatments? We have had... I would say with some of my more like complicated situations, like with the school avoidance that includes a lot of social anxiety, those tend to run a little bit longer, maybe in the like 12 to 14 ish range. But with some of them that are a little more straightforward, then it doesn't tend to take as long, maybe six to eight or 10 knowing that those first couple of sessions are really about still focusing on the therapeutic alliance, developing that comfort with the process, getting used to what the VR feels like, and then moving into the more like focused treatment sessions. So for people in Kalamazoo, I can refer them right to you. What about where do people, where do listeners, where are they going to refer their parents? Where do they find more about this? I'm going to put in lots of information in the show notes, but how do people find out about what you're doing? I wish they could do it virtual, like they could do well, a Zoom and, and do it with you. you. Know, actually, it's possible. So that's this. I really do have to give a lot of credit to it's a, Amelia Virtual Care is the software that I use, but they do have an option for clients to download their app, which puts the virtual environments on their smartphone. And then you can slide the smartphone into goggles that you can buy on Amazon for like 20 bucks that are like virtual reality goggles. You slide the smartphone into them and then it projects the virtual reality environments on their phone. So I have some clients that I've never met in person. And we do our like telehealth session while they're doing their virtual reality session. Yeah, I know. It has to be. I'm shaking my head. I can't believe this. <laughs> Who knew? This is like a get in the rocket ship. <laughs> We're right? going to the moon. I This is so interesting. So gosh, I'm wondering too, if there's apps where people can kind of do their own self-guided, but I like the idea of having you hold my hand. If I'm going to get on a really turbulent jet, I want you right there with me. <laughs> exactly. It's great to monitor because I can still see, how are you breathing? How are we working? Right. The coach is there. So, I mean, are, how do people find out about where there are therapists that can do virtual reality? Because I'm guessing right now, the way licensing is and state laws and all that, you probably can only see people in Michigan. So right. if I'm in Massachusetts, where do I find out about this? Well, I maybe I can put a link on my website. So my website is vrtherapysolutions.com. Okay. And then, the, like I said, the software I used is ameliavirtualcare.com. And so, but I also, I've been connected with a number of psychologists who also use that software, who are in other states. And so I can maybe look into putting a link on my website 
of one of those psychologists has developed like a kind of a directory. So I, I don't mm. know the name of that off the top of my head, okay. but I connected and get that to you. Sounds good. And then I've got one more question because we have to be practical. Does insurance cover this? It can be billed just like a regular therapy session. So it does go within regular insurance coverage. Perfect. What's not to love? <laughs> this is fascinating and it just feels like it opens up because anxiety disorders are common. I was doing the numbers from something that one of the references and so that 5% of phobias in kids is 350,000 kids and the 12% with social anxiety translates to almost 850,000 kids. So there's a lot of our patients out there that are struggling. Yes. And I have a feeling some of that could only maybe be worse after COVID. Everything. Stay home. And so it's helpful to know that there are options to get back out into the world to, again, like open up those doors to have full, rich lives for these kids and be able to show them that they are capable and confident and can go out in the world and do what they want to do. I love this. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I think this is really exciting. So I, I hope listeners will tune in and go to your site and look for the link and find a therapist that can do this because I think it's fascinating. Are there other people in Michigan doing it? Do you know? I do think there are some on the east side of the state, but I'm not sure about anyone here in West Michigan. Yeah, but I love, again, with these virtual options. And one of the few bright spots of the pandemic is what has happened with the ability to do Zoom and all kinds of things like that. Honestly, my podcast was born out of the pandemic. <laughs> Who knew that I was going to have a social life in a closet? But yeah, yeah, this is exciting. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing, you. Abby. I, it's just so cool that there's people like you out there exploring these really exciting new therapies. Get creative, right? And do it with a coach. I love that. Well, listen, thanks so much. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer. And yeah, I think this is a great opportunity for clinicians to refer to people like you. Thank you, Leah. It was my pleasure. Wasn't that a fun discussion? So many ideas for all the possibilities. And who would think that virtual reality would become a reality? So here are my takeaways. Number one, a huge thank you to Dr. Vanderweg for sharing about this really incredible new technology. Number two, anxiety disorders are common. I know you know that. You all see them. And a degree of these are actually normal developmental occurrences. Think dropping off your three-year-old to a new daycare. Number three, but consider that social anxiety affects about 12% of kids. That's 850,000. And phobias occur about 5% of the time, and that results in about 350,000 kids. So these things are really prevalent. Number four, when a parent comes to you with a concern about school avoidance or phobias, first consider evaluating the core pillars. Do they have good nutrition? What about physical activity? Are they moving around because we know that's a relief for anxiety? What about time outdoors? Are they spending time playing? Check back with Dr. Beller Stryer's podcast on getting outside for more information on that. What about social function? How much time are they spending on screens? Are they sleeping in their own bed or creeping back into the parent bed? Are they able to stay in class? Are they even going to class? When there is functional impairment, refer. Number five. Exposure therapy and CBT have been the standard therapies for anxiety and phobias. Contact and exposure to the feared experience results in pushing past avoidance, rewiring the amygdala, and silencing the alarm bells, and then habituation, or tolerating the fear. Number six, there are, however, limitations of this traditional exposure therapy. For example, if you have a fear of flying, is it really possible to get you on and off airplanes? Number seven, rocket ship forward, virtual reality therapy. Number eight, virtual reality uses technology to project 3D graphics with interactive features, like moving your head from side to side and up and down, with an avatar that comes to life and it creates a sense of presence. That is, it feels real. Number nine, 
The therapist works with the patient to enter the virtual environment and then gradually introduces the feared experience with immediate feedback and coaching. Number 10, the therapist lays the ground. First, psychoeducation, what to expect, identifying patient goals, creating the test environment, and also a relaxation environment. Then starting at the bottom, the easiest challenge, the virtual reality begins. Number 11, the studies to date are small, but validate that presence can be established so, in other words, the virtual reality space can feel real, and that immersion can decrease fear. But we need larger random-controlled trials, especially for use in kids. Number 12, Dr. Vanderweg has had nice outcomes and has used this technology in school-age kids for a variety of phobias and concerns, school avoidance, storms, prepping for an MRI, etc. Just think of all the applications. My head was spinning. I just thought of so many patients that would have benefited from this. Number 13, for complex conditions like school avoidance and social anxiety, you may need 12 to 14 sessions. For more straightforward conditions like specific phobias, maybe six to eight sessions would be enough. And these can be billed like any other therapy, so they're covered by insurance. Bonus. Number 14, there are even virtual virtual reality opportunities where a session can be done remotely. I, I just can't hardly wrap my head around this. Too cool. Check out AmeliaVirtualCare.com, which is the creator of the virtual reality software. Number 15, Dr. Vanderwig's information can be found at VRTherapySolutions.com, and this will all be in the show notes, and she will be able to provide a link to find resources for VR in your locale. Number 16, the future is now. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. I, as always, appreciate you greatly. Please rate and review and take a look at my Instagram page for more episodes at Pediatric Meltdown, Dr. Gugino on Facebook, and Gugino L at MedicalBHS.com. I'd love to hear from you. And if you have ideas or suggestions for guests, that would be terrific. Take care and have a great day. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. I so appreciate your feedback. You can also DM me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. Find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino or send me an email at GuginoL at MedicalBHS.com. I'd love your suggestions for other episodes and recommendations for guest speakers. Thanks so much. I hope that you continue to enjoy your summer and that this posed some thought-provoking ideas. Take care and join me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.